we come in our studies through the book of Exodus to chapter 29, verse 22 through verse 46, the end of the chapter. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our God, we delight to sing praises to Your name. We are filled with wonder at the great privilege that we can come and offer prayers to You, uh, to come in this place and to open Your Word and to study it together, to look to the means of grace that You have given. And we pray that that cumulative effect of being exposed to Your Word of truth would work sanctifying grace in our lives, pressing us on toward our great heavenly home stirring within us a desire to live evermore for our blessed Savior who gave His life for us, who sent His spirits to change hard hearts, who continues to faithfully work that persevering grace within. And it's in the name of our blessed Savior that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 29, beginning in verse 22. You shall also take the fat from the ram, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread, and one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all of these on the palms of Aaron, and on the palms of his sons, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands, and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination, from what was Aaron's and his son's. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. He shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whoever touches the altar shall be holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. 
It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, as we think about where we are in our studies through the book of Exodus, the Lord, you will recall, gave very specific instructions to Moses about these priestly garments, with the emphasis being upon the high priest's garments. That was chapter 28. And now here in chapter 29, as we keep thinking this evening of this consecration ceremony in which the high priest is set apart or consecrated for this particular role, we're sort of bringing those special garments and the appointed high priest together in this week-long consecration ceremony. Now, this is not only a pretty lengthy passage, too long for us to cover last time we were together, but it's obviously a pretty lengthy and involved process throughout this ceremony. Now, last time, though it's been several weeks, we started looking at the beginning of this consecration ceremony. Let's remember that what we're reading here is instruction from the Lord to Moses atop Mount Sinai. The actual implementation of all of this happens later in the book of Leviticus. So, when that day comes, here's how all of this will unfold. These elaborately colored high priestly garments are prepared, sort of laid out before the high priest on that special day when it arrives. There then is this ritual of cleansing with water. The high priest, Aaron, is clothed with those garments, and he then is anointed with this sweet-smelling oil, both to indicate that he is being set apart from this moment on consecrated to serve the Lord. But that anointing with oil is also to indicate his need of dependence, that he needs the Spirit of the Lord both to empower him, enable him to fulfill the tasks that God is giving to him as he serves as priest. And then after the priest is washed, clothed, and anointed with oil, we left off talking about these three holy sacrifices which pointed to the need for substitutionary atonement. Now, the high priest is not made high priest because he's inherently holy. It's not as though he is the best who fills out a job description for this role. He is a sinner just like all the other Israelites, and so he is in need of forgiveness, in need of cleansing. He is defiled and guilty like all others. And so one after the other, each of these three sacrifices are brought, and the priests place or more like press their hands down upon the head of that substitutionary sacrifice, indicating the need for transference of guilt, removal of defilement. First, there was the sin offering, which was the bull that was offered upon the altar, consumed in the flames. Then there was the whole burnt offering of the ram. Then with the third sacrifice, there was another ram in which the blood was collected and manipulated in various ways. Some of the blood was placed upon the ear, the right thumb, and the right toe of the priests. Some of the blood was thrown upon the altar. 
Some of it was mingled with oil and sprinkled upon the priests, Aaron and his sons, in order to make them holy. Now, this is not just some elaborate ritual for its own sake. This is not the Lord thinking to himself, you know, the people need something to do to keep them busy when they're in the wilderness, lest they wander and stray. So, I'll come up with a week-long ceremony just to give them something to occupy themselves with. But no, not at all. There's important truth that's being taught here. And so, with all of these details, we do not want to lose sight of these three important theological things that are taught throughout this sacrificial ceremony, and that is our sin, God's holiness, and reconciliation. And so, through this process, as the people would be watching all of this unfolding as Aaron is ordained as high priest, they would be struck with the reality of their sin, that it's a much, much bigger problem than they're naturally going to think of on their own. And they're learning about God's holiness, that God's holiness is much more splendid, much more righteous, much more holy, much more just and true than they could ever fathom. And the holy God cannot be in the presence of a defiled sinner. And they are being taught about the Lord's provision of a way toward restoration. The wonder of it all, you see, is that the living God, the God whom we have offended, the God whom we have sinned against in Adam, is the one who moves toward us. He's the one that initiates all of this. He is the one that makes way for restoration and reconciliation. And so, all of these details of garments, manipulation of blood, animal parts separated, carried about in different ways, some sacrificed on the altar, some consumed by the priests, it might seem to our modern sensibilities to be barbaric and unenlightened. But don't lose sight of this fact. Don't lose sight of these three important theological truths. Your sin and my sin is an enormous problem, a much bigger problem than we oftentimes care to admit, a much bigger problem than we want to acknowledge, a much bigger problem than we could ever truly grasp. But thank the Lord, thank the, thank the living God a triune God of mercy, that He has not left us alone to perish in our sin, though it certainly would be just of Him to do so, because He is the Holy One who is to be feared. But He has provided a way through the shed blood of another, through the forfeiture of life of another, who takes our sin and our defilement away and who covers us in His righteousness. Now, there's an important order to all of this because one cannot have fellowship or peace with God until and unless that which causes separation and offense is removed. Just think of any sort of conflict that you've been involved in with another. Perhaps it's something that you did in offense toward a friend or a family member, something that you said, or you gave your word and failed to follow through. As long as that offense remains between you and another, you can't have true and lasting reconciliation. But when that matter is biblically resolved, there is healing in that relationship. We all know this to be true. We've all experienced this to some degree. We have all had relationships that were damaged through the presence of sin 
but because of the Lord's kindness, we've experienced healing. We've also experienced the flip side of that. When things are not properly resolved, relationships can be destroyed. Animosity can grow. Division can continue to even fester within and create bitterness within our hearts. Now, if we know this to be true on a human plane in our relationships with one another, then how much more, how much more significant, how much more destructive is our offense against the living God? And so, what we learn here as we move through the rest of Exodus chapter 29 is this, that now that defilement is removed through substitutionary atonement, there is restoration and fellowship with God. Or to put it more simply, there is restoration through sacrifice. Restoration through sacrifice. And so, first let's notice what we learn about this restored fellowship with God. And that's our first point this evening, fellowship with the Lord or fellowship with the living God. And here's what we find in this latter section of Exodus 29. As this second ram is divided with its parts separated, part of it is offered up as a food offering to the Lord, and part of it is reserved for the priests to consume themselves. Now, it's really a fellowship meal between the Lord and the priests who, of course, represent the covenant people. Now, this might not sound very appealing to us. Maybe you have that crazy uncle who likes to eat all of the fat that you cut off of your steak at the family barbecue, but the fat portions of the animal that are listed here would be the choicest part of that animal, the best part. It's the fat that produces that savory smell as it's placed upon the altar. It's the fat portion that adds to the tenderness of the meal. And so, the best part of the ram along with bread would be placed upon the open palm of Aaron and his sons as a wave offering to the Lord. Now, when you think of a wave offering, don't think of placing those things upon the hands and sort of swinging it back and forth. But most likely what this means is simply that this choice part of the ram along with bread would be lifted up to the Lord and then placed upon the altar, offered as a sacrifice to Him, as a food offering, as we read in verse 25. Now, there are perhaps several things that are being conveyed in this ritual. By holding up the best part of the sacrifice and the loaves, this would be an acknowledgement that the Lord is the giver of all things. He is the one who has given this life-sustaining food for His people. Everything is from Him. And this is a way to acknowledge that by raising it as a thank offering to God. Now, there are other places in Leviticus where there is provision made for a wave offering. But what we read here is somewhat unique because this is all part of this consecration ceremony that happens one time when the high priest is set apart for this office. On this particular act, it would be performed only for this special occasion. So, we might think of it like this. When someone is set apart for office, he may hold a symbol in his hand to represent his new role. A king may hold a royal staff. A soldier may hold a sword during some sort of dedication ceremony. 
when King Charles had his coronation ceremony back in May, he holds an orb in one hand and a scepter in another. Of course, both have history and symbolism to those things. And so, as these things are held in the hand of the priest, and the high priest in particular, it's a way to acknowledge not only that the Lord is the giver of all things, but these are symbols of the priestly role that he is about to undertake because he will continue to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And we'll come back to this more later, but notice that when these things are held up and then placed upon the altar, this sacrifice creates a pleasing aroma to the Lord as a food offering. But it's not just the Lord who receives a portion of that food offering. We read in verse 26 and verse 31 that part of this ram is portioned out and is to be cooked for the priests. This is part of their share to eat along with some of the bread. And so the picture is one of a fellowship meal. The Lord, of course, has no need for bread or meat, but these things are given to Him as a thank offering while also acknowledging the fellowship or peace that they have with God. And then some of the bread and meat is reserved for the priests to consume. And so this is nothing other than a covenantal meal with the Lord. It is intimate fellowship that comes between the people and God as that sin is removed. And so the order, again, to all of this is so important. There is washing. There is clothing. There is anointing. There is sprinkling with blood, purification through the shed blood of another. And now they have fellowship with the living God. We might think similarly about how those in our own time who have faith in Christ Jesus, who make that public profession of faith in Christ, resting and receiving on Him alone for salvation, are to come to the table of the Lord and commune with Him. You see, what we read here in Exodus is a foretaste of that intimate covenant fellowship meal that we have because of the final and satisfactory work of Jesus. And so, what they saw, we might say in shadow form, we now see in a greater way And yet, we too long for something much more as we await the return of our Savior. And what joy on that final day when our salvation will be made sight. What wonder to have that unhindered vision of our glorified, risen Savior for all of eternity and to feast with Him and with God's people without end. Now, second, in our text, we read about a plan for succession. This is the second point that I want us to see from the text, and that is just planning for the future. Planning for the future, we see this in verses 29 and 30. Now, here we read this brief instruction on provision for the following generations. Now, we know that Aaron is Moses' older brother. And we know that Moses, at this time, as he's on Mount Sinai, is at least 80 years old. And so, Aaron is at least 83 years old. And so, the natural question, when all of this instruction comes to the people, they might be excited about it while sort of casting an eye to the side looking at Aaron like, I'm not sure how much life this guy has left in him. And so, the Lord answers that provision here for future generations, 
The Lord is establishing the perpetual office of priesthood, that there must always be a high priest among the people, from the people, to lead the people. Now, Aaron, as the first high priest, of course, will not live forever. We read of his death in Numbers chapter 20. Now, just before Aaron dies, we find this explicit instruction that his high priestly garments are to be taken from him and placed upon his son, Eleazar. And so, each time a new high priest is ordained to office, this elaborate ceremony that we're reading about here in Exodus 29 is to be repeated. Aaron dies because of the curse of Adam. His son Eleazar dies because of the curse of Adam. His son Phineas will die, and on and on it goes. Now, we have no way of knowing for certain how many high priests there were from Aaron until the Lord Jesus comes. But the Jewish historian Josephus says that there were 83 high priests from Aaron to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 under the Roman Empire. Now, we read some of the names of the high priests in our own Scripture reading through the Old Testament and even into the earthly ministry of Christ, but many of these names are lost to any historical record. But you see, the high priesthood, contrary to Josephus, did not come to an end in A.D. 70, but it came to an end in the Lord Jesus as a high priest from a different line, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, from the line of Melchizedek, Jesus is the last and the final high priest. He is the perfect high priest. He is the only inherently holy high priest, the one who is not sinful in Adam and who has no sin of his own. He is the only high priest who has no need to lay his hands upon the head of a substitute, for there was no guilt or defilement within him that needed to be transferred. Instead, it is our guilt, our shame, our defilement, our wicked rebellion that was placed upon him. And it is through eyes of faith, we might say, that we rest our hands upon His precious head as He shed His blood for us upon the cross. He is the only high priest who sacrificed His own blood, who gave His own life as an atonement for sin. He is the only one who could have done this as one who is fully God and fully man. And so, this elaborate consecration ceremony that was to last for seven days that consisted of sacrifices of atonement made each day of that special week and then led to a covenantal meal of peace, whether that happened 83 times with 83 different high priests or whether it was more or less, this has all now come to an end through the work of our Savior. I was listening to something this past week in which the pastor pointed out that in a recent survey conducted among Americans, something like 60 to 70 percent of all people believe in the existence of hell and a place of judgment to come. But then if you were to ask a follow-up question, well, who is it that occupies that place of judgment, the response is virtually the same. Well, it's not me if that's what you're driving at, and it's not anyone that I know but it's certainly a place that's reserved for the most wicked, the most heinous among us. You see, most people live as though it's a matter of indifference, what you really believe about God. 
as though God will be charitable toward all systems of belief, as though God's holiness and righteousness is a thing to be trifled with. But what we read throughout the Word of God, and I think what we see in this portion of Exodus, is that there is one way, there is one path, there is one means of provision from God in order to have peace with Him and hope of eternal life. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to man under heaven by which we might be saved. And it is through Christ Jesus alone that we have fellowship with God, peace with Him, and hope of that day of feasting to come. Gerhardus Voss writes, a meal can signify both the cessation of hostility and the communion of friendship. And that covenantal meal that the priests experienced was possible because hostility was removed and friendship or communion was established. But until Jesus comes as that final high priest, there will be this repetition for generations to come. And that leads us to the third thing to think about for a few moments, which, which is sacrificial repetition, the repetition of sacrifices. Now, there are two types of sacrificial repetition that are seen in our text. The first is seen during the consecration ceremony, which again lasts for seven days and is repeated for that seven-day period every time a new high priest is appointed. And each day throughout that week, a bull is offered and its blood poured out upon the altar for cleansing. Now, just flip back to verse 10 of this chapter to see what would happen each day during this week-long ceremony. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And I think what we could say is that throughout this week-long ceremony, the high priest is being struck with the reality of his own inadequacy. He's being reminded of his own sin and need for atonement. And it's being shown him through this repetition that no amount of bulls or rams could definitively deal with his sin. And as he reflects upon that reality each day throughout this week-long ceremony, Undoubtedly, there's a level of humility rising up within his mind and heart. But if at some point later on in his service as high priest, if he's ever tempted towards self-righteousness or pride, he could think back to this consecration ceremony where all of these sacrifices were made because of the problem of his sin. But it's not just here at the consecration ceremony. Of course, as you know, each year on the Day of Atonement, the preparation day had sacrifices that were again to be offered for the high priest before he was in a position of representing the people. 
And so constantly he is being reminded of his own inadequacy, of his own need for a substitute. And that should work within his heart humility and compassion. We read as much in Hebrews, if you'll turn there with me, to Hebrews chapter 5. It almost goes without saying, I think every time we've looked at a text from this portion of God's Word, we've gone to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a wonderful commentary on this section of the book of Exodus. We can't really understand what's going on in Exodus without that explanation from the book of Hebrews. And here in chapter 5, we read in verses 1 through 4, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, the writer of Hebrews goes on to state that just as no high priest was self-appointed, neither was Jesus a self-appointed high priest, but it was the Father who did so. And just as that earthly high priest from the line of Aaron was to sympathize with others because of his own sin and weakness, all the more and much more effectually, Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And so the high priest's consecration ceremony comes to an end there in verse 37. After seven days, the altar is made holy, and the high priest and the priests who are appointed to help him begin their regular duties of morning and evening sacrifices. And this is another type of sacrificial repetition that we see. Look there again at verse 38. This is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And so every day, without ceasing, there are morning sacrifices and there are evening sacrifices that bracket the day, which would have been filled with more sacrifices as the people of Israel would have brought their own to the altar. And so his job is never done, never finished, because a sufficient sacrifice is not to be found. Hebrews 10, again, Hebrews 10, verse 11 Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so as we think again for a moment of the big picture here, what is it that the Lord is teaching through all of this? Why does he do all of this? None of this is arbitrary, but it's all with great purpose. And so we might think briefly of a fourth point this evening, and that is just the big picture and our response. And really the big picture is captured there in verses 42 through 46, in which the Lord says, I will meet with you. I will speak with you. 
you will be consecrated. You will be sanctified to serve me. I will dwell among you. I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord God. In other words, the purpose of all of this is that God would come and dwell in favor with His covenant people, and that they would respond in giving their lives of devotion and in devotion to Him. And so, all of this is for the purpose of God dwelling among His covenant people. And so, think of it like this, blood atonement for the purpose of consecration, blood atonement for the purpose of devotion, blood atonement for the purpose of fellowship and communion with God. And you see, all of this points to the wonder of Christ our Lord, the blood of Jesus shed that we might respond in service to Him. Just as that thank offering, just as that peace offering was to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord, so our lives are to be offered to Him as a fragrant offering to our God. I don't think John Calvin had the wave offering in mind with this, but you're familiar of his illustration, and I think it's certainly applicable, in which he drew an open hand with his heart upon it, with the words inscribed underneath, promptly and sincerely. I give my heart to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. And so, the big picture is that Christ died for His people that we might live for Him. And there is so much in daily life that can distract us from this big picture. There are the concerns of our work, our daily labor, concerns about the future, our finances, our job security, the world that our children and grandchildren have to grow up in. We're struck daily with our own weaknesses, our own limitations in so many ways. But God is at work bringing about His purposes, making us holy, preparing us for our final home, and He will come again. And the wonder of the providence of the Lord is that on that final day, we will be able to look back over all things that seem to be so chaotic, and we will see that it was all part of His glorious plan, that He has been ruling, that He has been directing and in all things for His purposes and for our glory, His glory and our good. May the Lord be pleased to take the truth of His Word, write it on the hearts of His people as we press on toward our heavenly home.